Hi, I'm Carol Bartlett, and welcome to Creators at the World's Edge, the Tech NL podcast, where we share the inspiring stories of people who are shaping the thriving tech scene in Newfoundland and Labrador. Today, I sit down with Isaac Adejuan, the CEO and founder of Metrics Flow. Armed with his privacy software, Isaac is going against the tech giants in a battle to keep your data where it belongs with you. What did your father tell you about the snow coming to Canada? So my dad lied to me that if I came to Canada and I let snow touch my ears, because of the temperature difference, it's going to freeze and fall off. And so <laughs> and so I, I, I still touch it every now and then when there's snow, to be honest, because just to make sure, because sometimes it's cold and I'm just making sure it's still there. <laughs> but yeah, he, he told me my ears will fall off and... I, I always, that was the first thing I always protected every time oh, I was like, I had to cover my ears. ears. And he was very serious okay. about it. So I, I just believed him, right? <laughs> my name is Isaac Dejoan. I'm the CEO and founder at Metrics Flow. And uh, I work with a small tech company here in Newfoundland that is helping to ship the feature of the attribution for customers globally. And I enjoy spending time outdoors. Uh, I have a small hobby farm, uh, which is a goat farm right here in the city. And I tend to spend a lot of time there when I'm not working. Tell me about what it was like in Nigeria before you left. Uh, so I grew up in a city called Abuja, which is the federal capital of the country. And so I grew up in that city, um, I think it's about 6 million people in the city. And just a small city. It's a small city. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I grew up seeing different kinds of governance. So growing up, I come from a background, I come from a culture called the Yoruba tribe. Okay. So Nigeria has over 100 tribes in different languages and dialects. And my tribe is from the Yoruba tribe. And... Um, we have about 32 million people in, in total. And so I, I grew up having to learn the culture of my tribe. And then uh, the country itself started as a military regime. So it was more, it wasn't democracy at all. It was all like, you know, we had the general and my grandfather was in the army too. So it was kind of a military upbringing. And then we eventually became a democratic company, a country where we had election. I think our first one was in 1999. And so that was the first time we, we ever knew what democracy was like. And since then, it's been coming to Canada, I, I get to actually experience the full, you know, experience of democracy. What was your experience like during engineering? And what did you start as a student? So... I didn't really know. There was a program called Engineering One in early programming. I wanted to be an electrical engineer. So that was something I had in mind. But I didn't really know what it meant until I did Engineering One program. I was exposed to different courses. And and then I also was very fortunate. I did six work times across the country. So I worked here in Newfoundland uh, with a refinery come by chance. I worked in uh, Alberta with oil and gas companies. 
work in BC, worked in Saskatoon. Um, so I, I got to work with six, you know, I did six work times across the country. So I got to really experience, you know, take my learnings from the classroom to actual workforce and see what it's like. So by the time I finished that program, I, I had learned what it was like to be an engineer, which was, you know, problem solving mostly. And then coming into the real world is like trying to figure out what the problem is and then find a solution to it. It's completely two different worlds. I really like that distinction of in business is trying to find out what the problem is. I, I think that's one of the nuggets is if you can find out what the problem is, the solution is much easier both to build and then to sell. Absolutely. And, and I had to unlearn that as an engineer because one of the things I learned with engineering was, you know, you always had a problem set and you were given the sets of tools. Uh, sometimes it's in forms of calculus or um, whatever the subject area or area of, you know, of, um, I guess, uh, you're given the set of school tools to solve the problem. And you, there's a progression to how you develop that tool set. So, for example, if you need to solve like complex mathematics problem, you start with a very basic mathematics and then you prove out your um I guess your formulas and then you use that to solve the problem. In real world, you, you don't know what the problem is. So there's no set of tools to abide by or there's no like process to go through. So there's a, you have to really unlearn the engineering skill set and then take on the entrepreneurship skill set, which really is about the journey to figuring out the problem. And then once you find that problem, then you can apply your engineering skill set to solve it. Let's go back to the early days of Metrics Flow. Who was your first customer and how did you get them? That was the most difficult part of the company, right? You have an idea um, and you, you're trying to convince people to try it. Uh, our first customer was Verafin. And Verafin? Yeah. The only way we got Verafin was uh, I was pitching to the board of Genesis Center and I, Jimmy King happened to be sitting on, in part of that board. And so, so you're referring to Jamie King, who's the CEO of Verifin, who just got bought by NASDAQ for approximately $3.6 billion Canadian. So just a small fish. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and it was a little bit intimidating, intimidating, I'll tell you, like just seeing, you know, the caliber of people sitting on the board seat. I've never pitched to like a, like successful people before at the time. I was just, yeah. just a student trying to like, get my idea out and and he happened to be sitting down there and there were other really, you know, high professional people on the board also sitting there at the Genesis Center. We were still back at the Inco building okay. at, at Mon. Yeah. And um, I pitched the idea and Jamie happened to see what we're building far out. Like he could, he could see where it could go. He could see where the potential of the technology could, was, was heading. And so... Uh, I received an email about, let's say, I think it was two days later, and it was like, Jamie, Jamie reached out, and I was like, am I in trouble? Are we building something that? <laughs> and uh, he, he extended a, a hand of, of help, really. You know, he, he said, you know, I, I, I think I may know what you're building. My team has worked on this space. If you're interested, I would introduce you to them, and you can pick their brain. And that was that was the main 
when I got that, I, I thought I'm going to keep working on this. It just, it meant a lot to have someone that successful offer a hand to someone who is just not, doesn't really know what he's doing yet at that point. And so we were introduced to the team and the team really provided a lot of guidance. We worked very closely with the team. All of our early learnings, all of my early learnings in marketing, I have an engineering background, so I wasn't a marketer. Um, but all the learnings from identifying the problem and knowing what we exactly what we're trying to build all came from the Verifin team. Wow. And so what we did was we took all that learning and then we would try to go find the next Verifin. What is metrics flow? What is the problem that you're solving? Good question. So back in engineering school at Mon, it all started from Mon, I'd built a platform that reached over 300,000 unique visitors. And one of the things I learned through that process was I found I was losing data um, on that platform. How and, do you mean? So I found when I was using my analytics on the digital platform I'd built, I could see that the, there were discrepancies between different analytics tools that I was using to track my visitors. So in some cases, I would see a spike, say, uh, for a period of six months, I would see, say, 100 users. I'd look at another tool, I could be seeing 150 users. And then if I look across the same period of time, that number could decline by, say, 40 60%. And so when you look at the data over an extended period of time, you can see that the discrepancies between that. What did you attribute that discrepancy to? Right. So it came down to the behaviors of the users on the other end, where they were blocking a technology that industry has traditionally used for over 30 years called cookies. And those cookies were originally built in a lab uh, back, I think, about in the 2000s to enable web communication. And so when users delete those cookies, you lose a lot of data. So tell me exactly what a cookie is when, uh, you know, we all see it on the website. I saw it last night. I was visiting a new website. I said, accept cookie. I said no. The, the idea around it is give me the permission to place a JavaScript file or a non-technical word, place a tracking device or a tracking logic on your device and browsers, and I want to collect your data. I want to learn about everything you're doing. Ah. And I want to collect all that information, and I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do with them, but just give it to me. And that and that's how cookies have worked in in many, in many years. And that was the problem I found there. And I found users were delete they were deleting those cookies because they did not want to give up that information. And what was happening with the information is a lot of the big tech, so the Googles and the Facebooks, take that information. They apply very sophisticated models and algorithms to them to learn about your behavior and then retarget you with advertisements. And that's how the, the web has worked for over 20, 30 years. Another way to look at it is it's really like an auction house, right? The two sides, there's a buyer, there's a seller, and there's, an, there's a middleman who's trying to connect both of them. And you can look at Facebook and Google, the way they make the money, it's like they are the auction house. And so you are on the other side who is saying, I just want to enjoy my experience on the website. And the, on the other side, there's a buyer who wants to buy that interest. And so what you do is there's a fast transaction happening on the web where as you give up your cookies and your data, 
the big tech can take that, learn about you, and then sell that information. So I found between 40 to 70% of users were deleting their cookies. It was a privacy concern, it was a privacy issues for users, and I wanted to solve that problem. I wanted to create a new way that we can still collect data in a privacy-friendly way, make sure consents uh, and clarity is, is implemented in ways that users know exactly what data is being collected, what's being used for. And, and so the way data is collected, processed, and used should comply with data privacy laws and make sure that the users own their data. And, and that was the original, prob- original problem I wanted to solve. And, and today, Metrixflow is a cookie-less analytics software for enterprise marketing teams. So it still collects data, but doesn't use cookies. Correct. What we've done is we've said, no more cookies. Let's completely take the cookies out since the entire web is built out of it. Let's create a new way, which is the recognition technique, where it allows us to still collect data from our clients in a privacy-friendly way. And we we're fortunate we had Microsoft invest in us in the early days. So we built out our cloud infrastructure in ways where we can control how data is collected, feed that into the cloud, and use a recognition technique to create identifiers in the cloud that then allows us to keep that relationship between users and, brow- and companies they trust. And so really we're bringing that one-to-one relationship back to the web. What's your journey from being a solopreneur to having up to 14 employees and growing? It's been, looking back now, I I didn't think I could do it. I'll be very honest. I didn't think we could actually build a team because when I looked at the cost of hiring, it was really high. Like about 80% of our entire cost structure right now is on employee. So hiring and retaining talent and finding people who can help us build a company was one of the things I didn't think we could do because I couldn't pay myself for four years. How was I going to pay 14 other people for, you know, and, and keep them employed? And one of the first things I started was to find a co-founder. And my co-founder happened to have a really high, good paying job. And so the question was, how can I convince him to quit his job and come work and not get paid? <laughs> So I think that was my first biggest challenge. <laughs> That's a big challenge. Right. Yeah. So the first recruit was my co-founder. His name is Bukunola Ladele. And he's also a computer science student at Memorial University. He finished the program at Mon. And he's a very strong developer. So I, I had to convince him to, to join me as a co-founder. One of the things is it's if, if there's capital somewhere that can maybe give him some confidence that, you know what, there's money here. We're going to be fine. I didn't have any of that. And so... Somehow I competed him. He was working for a big company called Valley. Uh, and I, yeah. I just told him, mining is boring. Like, why, why would uh, you want to do that? Like, right. Like, yeah, kind of yeah. come, come the tech direction. It's, it's amazing. And, and I told him to at least try. And he has a really, he's one of the best developers I know. Um, I have a technical background, but he is a much stronger developer. And I kind of just over time worked with him. We worked for a few years. And then I think he started to get excited about what we're building and started to get excited about the traction we're generating. And it was a very tough sell, but uh, he called me one day and said, I quit my job. And I was actually like, I actually panicked. I was like, what? (laughs) 
because I didn't think he was going to do it. The first thing that came was, we don't have money to pay you. <laughs> and I think he ended up going for about two years without pay, but he had saved up a lot of money. Uh, so that gave me a lot of confidence that um, I had two years to work with him because he was also going to have to need to get paid. And so that started to force me to start looking at how we're going to actually raise capital. Like, I said to look at myself, I was like, I have to start taking care of myself too. I'm four years in this. And I also had immigration issues where immigration didn't recognize my experience as as work. I'm not paying taxes. So I couldn't get my PR because I didn't have anything to show. I only just had an engineering ring, but it's useless because I'm not working and I'm not creating any um, returns. When I applied for my tax, for my PR, I had to use the startup visa route because I couldn't use my engineering degree. And that was what Genesis came in and really helped me with documentation to do that. So bringing in my first um, co-founder was a big turning point. And then since then, we raised more capital. So we had to raise venture capital. That's where it comes in. And that comes with a lot of pressure too. When you go raise money and take someone's money, then now you have to basically walk Work with the money and try to get them returned. But how much have you raised? We haven't made an official announcement, oh, but we've. It's this been is so <laughs> undercover. It's a it secret. Is, yeah. we'll, we'll make we'll make we'll make it public. But we we've raised in the millions. I would say it's it's in the millions. And it's been enough to help keep our 14 employees right now and we're going to raise again this year so uh, I also learned very quickly once you raise once you you have to keep raising uh, till at least you can get to a point where you can sustain um, but from the first one even hiring a first employee like a first employee actually got hired by another big company and I realized very quickly that even with money in the bank account you still have to like convince them to come work for you and so there's a lot of selling you know, I move. I have to change my mindset from it's not this salary we can pay them because we can never pay them enough. It's can we can they be sold on their mission? And if they can be sold on a mission and they're excited enough and they want to be part of it, then the salary is the next piece. So when we do interviews, we always tell that this is not a job. It's not a night. We're not there yet. We're still in the early stage where we're trying to build something here. If you're excited about that and willing to take a pay cut, <laughs> then come work for us. But um, but a lot of it is our interviews now is actually very upfront with our employees that look, we, we can't afford what the big techs are paying you, but they were, we're competitive in the market, but just not paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to hire. So it's about selling the vision, selling the value prop, and then trying to recruit an emission. Mm-hmm. And everyone we've brought on has been like that. Wow. Um, well, you're certainly not without the challenges and and the scars uh, to go to battle to prove it. Um, and unofficially, congratulations on the the raise that you're going to announce soon. Thanks. What do you think needs to happen with um, underrepresented groups and raising capital uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador and in Canada in general? Yeah, I, I think that's a very big, big topic. <laughs> and um, I, I think raising by itself is very difficult, irrespective of 
you know, if you're a marginalized group or where you come from, what you look like, just raising in general is hard. When you belong to a different kind of race, it can be harder. So, for example, only about 3% of venture capital goes to Black and Latina founders. So you have about 97% going to other uh, majority white founders. And so when you look at the stats, that's not really in favor of being a Black or being... And, and those are just the stats, those are the facts out there. And so I think that's on a global... Um, you know, if you look at it in North America and, and where capital go and the, the softwares or the companies who take this capital, it, it really impacts everyone's life. It's not, it's like, it, it's, it has a potential to, you know, impact all of our lives. And so I think the allocation of capital is currently absolutely unfair. Um, if you also look at the stat, I think it's about 2.6% of founders are female. Um, and when you look at and then the question is, oh, we don't get enough um, applicants from these groups. And, and I don't think so. I think, I think the problem is we don't get enough resources to help these other groups to be excited enough or to be able to participate in these you know, financial opportunities that create wealth. One of the things I think has been different from my experience or one of the, you know, it's not because I can send more emails or it's just because I've been really fortunate to have someone who is in a position of power invest in me, someone who's in a position of power, mentor me, it's a lot of mentorship. Like I'm sure if you talk to my early mentors, they're probably really frustrated about me, but were patient enough to really help me. And, and if you look at all those who are successful, everyone had to go through that process. It's about mentorship, it's about access to opportunities, it's about encouragement, it's about helping people see, like in my case, we had someone like Jamie King reached out. And and that was a big change. That changed a lot of my life. So we have 14 other people on that same mission now trying to solve the problem. We have investors in Canada and US. So I think the core of it is, are these marginalized groups actually offered or encouraged or provided equal access to opportunity? And the answer is no. It's, it's not, there's no other way to say it, it's no. Do you think that immigrants coming in start on an equal playing field? I think if you're an immigrant, there is no playing field. You have to first find a playing field and then you have to play in the playing field. And I think a lot of things initially completely remove those playing field. In some cases, when you get opportunity to play in the playing field, like it's not it's not an equal playing field. You're probably almost like the answer is no. The answer is no. And I'll give a specific example about my experience. I mean, I've evolved from being a student to now being a business owner. And when I was a student, I recognized that, yes, I have to be in school. I think it really helped me up the economy. Immigrants and international students like myself contribute about $21 billion every year into the Canadian economy. So there's, there's economic value there that they bring into the economy. But when you look at things like every international student in the country has... Um, you know, has to, they need to open a bank account. They need to have a, um, they have cell phone numbers, they have identity cards, they have driver's license. So there's a very high level of identification that is created with this, you know, pool of international students. But when, when you look at a place where they have to pay taxes when they work, every international student in this country has a social insurance number that starts with a nine. 
And so that nine is an identifier to all the institutions. It could be a red flag or it could be used to then create policies that marginalizes or creates that marginalization. So in my case, for example, I'm in my 30s now, but I didn't get access to stock market until probably less than two years ago because my identification is a nine. And all institutions know that I didn't get access to a lot of what like I apply for credit cards and I don't get it because I have a nine. Um, but even though I pay taxes, like I, I, I make, but because of that number, then you can easily identify even without talking to the person. I talked to, I called my bank just last week and they were still saying, oh, you're a nine. It's like, no, I'm a one now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a big difference. So if you're a Canadian, you get a one. If you're not, you get a nine. So, oh, so it changes. It does it change. crosses over as it soon as change. you get citizenship. Exactly. Or even a PR too. PRs get a one too. Okay. Yeah, so which is good. But I think it's just things like that are intentionally put into the system too that can then create those, those forms of uh, marginalization. I don't think people are intentionally doing it, but I think the, the there's an intention to put those um, red tips into to, marginal, to kind of, you know, limit access to financial wealth, I think. A lot of people who, again, this is my view of how I view things, how I think real change happens. We have to be very intentional about how we make them. The two parts I see, I see the world as two parts. There's a social aspect and there's the economic aspect. And I think a lot of things we do every day, a lot of conversations we do is really tied to that social part. What I'm talking about here is the economic part of it, which drives a lot of the economy, right? Is when those decisions are made, when financial decisions specifically are made, I think they need to, they need to factor more of this underrepresented and marginalized group in, in those decision-making process. And I think we need to be very clear and direct about <laughs> what we're talking about. It, it's about money. Uh, what's the future of the internet? So what I'm really excited about is the idea of where it's going. And, I, and I'll come to that. But looking back to where we've come from, I think Web3 would be a very interesting future. Um, and, and maybe I can explain what what it means. But so the Web 3.0. Web 3.0, yes. So the, the key part to that is the ownership and financial opportunity it's going to create for the next generation. And if you look at Web 1, let's start from there, what it meant. Web 1 meant there was only one group of people who, who could control information. For example, we could use the CNNs of the world where every information, news, content comes through. The one, CNN? CNN. Yeah, okay. uh, news, for example, or BBC yeah. or the big, big, big uh, media news. Broadcasting. Outlet. Yeah, broadcasting. And if we look at that, that, that can be an example of Web 1. If I relate that back to my upbringing, that's a military regime. Right, it's like it's one route. It's you know it, it, the, the head of the military says it, and the entire country about hundred million people just follow. The second part, which is the Web two, I think it's the era of which I think is where we are right now, which is around ability to read and write. So we can read information from those who control it, but we have our own 
voice now to contribute. And that's what social media brought. Right, social media allowed everyone to become their own news outlet and everyone had their own version of, you know, when you get information, people can say, yeah, that's not true or that's true. So it created a, a, a sense of uh, a community, right? Like, and, and if I relate that back to my upbringing, that's democracy, right? That's like oh. freedom to now speak, freedom to participate, freedom to be part of the conversation. Yeah. Web3 is about the big challenge we're having now, which is the financial inclusion. It's about ownership. It's about having participating in the wealth and having equal opportunity to, um, you know, people who might maybe marginalized group or people who normally wouldn't have access to. And I'll give an example. So we've heard of crypto cryptocurrencies, right? Uh, crypto is very neutral. It doesn't care if you're white, black, or Latina, if you're rich, wealthy. If you want to participate, you can go on a platform, put in your information, and it takes away the middleman. You know, it gives that peer-to-peer It doesn't matter contract. if you have a nine. It doesn't matter if you have a nine, exactly. Or a one. And it doesn't yeah. matter what time you want to participate. You can go on and trade crypto. That's a good example of what Web3 is going to look like. Um, another example is an NFT. So I'm not sure if you've heard of NFT. It's around creating digital assets and being able to monetize that. So if you're an artist or if you're creative, you don't have to go find someone to, you know, give you a stamp or go through someone who is um, highly influential you can just create your art go on an NFT platform and monetize it and make money what's an example of an NFT platform so I believe you could trade NFT on the platform called Binance okay and so that allows artists now to take their skill set create an art and list that on the platform and then monetize that to make money um, without needing to go through any form of, you know, uh, maybe marginalization or discrimination, you can just do that and 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 be and be fine. Uh, the other part too is around just ownership comes with Web3. If you want to own a piece of assets, if you want to invest, if you want to find opportunities to create wealth and be part of a growing economy, um, I, I think the Web3 would offer that. And that's what I'm excited about. Now, Metrics Flow would not directly play in the Web3 world, but I think it would play indirectly in the area of how we treat attribution data. So you still need a vast amount of data to be able to make these things happen. And where we, I believe we're going to play is around making sure that the way data is collected, processed, and used complies with, again, privacy laws, users' informations are secured. It doesn't get in the hands of the big tech. So the big techs are like the Facebook and, and you know, who would monetize the data and resell them. So we don't resell data. So I think we'll play in that area of, of data attribution in the Web3 world. Do you think there's a demise, a built-in demise for the the Fang, like the the Facebook, Google, the so Fang, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix? Uh, I think the idea of Web three is almost to go against the Fang, right? Like the Fang companies, 
Facebook, Amazon, Net, Netflix, uh, Google. But yes, the, the idea is to, it's, it, it's almost opposite because they own most of the data. About four point, I think just over, I think 4.6 billion people access the web in the time of COVID. So it's a lot of people and, and having just a small pool of tech companies control that data. Um, it, it, it's it's really powerful. With Web3, it's about decentralization. It's about giving people back the data. It's about creating that one-to-one relationship. It's about smart contracts. It's about inclusion, inclusivity, and all that. So I'm really excited about that future. I, I really want to see what it's like. And if I relate that back to my upbringing, I think it's freedom. <laughs> Isaac Adejuan, CEO of Metrics Flow. Thank you so much for everything that you shared here with us today. I enjoyed your insights on on belonging and hearing your struggles that have made you what you are today. And we look forward to seeing big things from you in the future. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you have tech stories of your own from Newfoundland and Labrador to share, we'd love to hear about them. Send us an email, info at technl.ca. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Creators at the World's Edge, wherever you get your podcast to get notified for each new episode. Creators at the World's Edge is produced by David Lank and Stefan Dandino. Edited by Stefan Dandino. The executive producer is Marlene Hardy. Sound engineering by Marco Dulla and original theme music by Elliot Dix featuring Mick Davis. Special thanks to the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency, the Newfoundland and Labrador Department of Industry, Energy and Technology and the entire team at TechNL for bringing this podcast to life. I'm Carol Bartlett. Thanks for listening. 